This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Today, I would like to talk about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, also known as CTE. And what is CTE? CTE is a neurodegenerative disease, which means it is a disease where brain cells die off over time. And I want to talk about it because it is a condition that has been portrayed in television and movies, and it has not been displayed or portrayed accurately. For example, there was an episode on Law & Order SVU in which a former football player became a sexual predator, and the rationale given in the plot was because he had CTE, which is interesting because CTE right now, based on current technology, really cannot be definitively diagnosed through any means except for autopsy. So that was a bit of a creative license with the producers. But the problem is portrayals of CTE tend to color people's perception of the disease and cause people to have erroneous conclusions about the disease. And I have experienced this myself where I have had patients and clients with probable CTE based on history and clinical presentation. And there is a definitive bias against caring for these individuals in long-term care settings. So that's part of the reason I want to provide this information today. I want to talk about the history of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Although CTE is a relatively new term, Clinicians have known for almost 100 years that repeated head trauma could cause memory problems. In 1928, Harrison Martland, a physician, published an article in in JAMA where he described punch-drunk syndrome in boxers, especially those, and I'm going to quote here, of the slugging type who are usually poor boxers and in second-rate fighters used for training purposes. Later, this term evolved into pugilistic dementia, and this syndrome included worsening memory problems, psychiatric problems such as depression, personality changes, 
fluctuating emotions, that is labile emotions, such as people flying off the handle and going from calm to inappropriate aggression over trivial events. Also, movement disorders, such as tremors and unsteady gait, unsteady walking. That was where the people, or rather Markland, called it the punch drunk because of the staggering gait. In 1957, the term chronic traumatic encephalopathy arrived in the medical literature. In the medical literature, excuse me. But there was very little scientific interest in the phenomenon because everyone thought that this was a problem unique to boxers. And so there wasn't a whole lot of excitement or interest around CTE. But that changed in 2005 in which a brain of a football player was analyzed and it was dissected and the individuals looking at this brain found CTE. And when scientists found the neurofibrillary tangles and beta amyloid plaque that comprised the presentation of CTE, that generated that was a game changer. All of a sudden, it's, oh my gosh, if we found this in the brain of a football player, where else could it be? However, it took 11 years. In 2016, initial criteria for the neuropathological diagnosis of CTE were published. And what I mean by that is we have criteria for an autopsy of the brain and you have to have specific presentations of the tau tangles in order for someone to say yes this is CTE at the moment we really don't have firm clinical diagnostic criteria we have like i mentioned in a few minutes ago there is a cluster of syndromes so if you get those cluster of syndromes you think wonder if this is cte but for now it cannot be diagnosed without an autopsy of the brain so i'm going to talk for a second about chronic traumatic encephalopathy and contact sports CTE has been discovered in the brains of football players, soccer players, rugby, and um, hockey players. In fact, the same pathology has also been noted in military personnel who experienced traumatic head injuries. But even research studies seem to contradict each other. For example, one group of researchers examined the brains of 226 deceased American football players and found CTE in 99% of the brains in 223 out of the 226 brains that were evaluated, that were dissected. And these same researchers concluded 
that the longer one played football, the greater the likelihood that CTE pathology would be in the brain. And they even went as far as to quantify duration of playing history with the severity of the CTE. So they also concluded that the longer the duration of one's football career, the more severe the CTE was in the brain. On the other hand, another group of researchers found differing results. They analyzed 35 brains, so the sample size was a lot smaller, and they noted CTE occurred in less than half, in 48.6% of the brains from former professional football and hockey players. And they didn't notice a difference between either group, but then the sample size was really small, so it was hard to get really definitive evidence. But just by glancing at it, they're like, yeah, the football and hockey player samples behaved very similarly. These researchers did not find a relationship between the likelihood of CTE and the length of one's career or the position played. In fact, they even did a deeper dive and looked at, for example, the hockey players and how what was their history of penalties and aggressive playing styles because their assumption was the more aggressively these hockey players performed the more likelihood they were going to be get getting blows to the head and therefore would develop CTE but they also noted no no real relationship between the aggressiveness of their playing and the development of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Now, a couple of words of caution about these results, and I think that's what frustrates people with research, because even though findings can be compelling, you have to interpret the findings carefully. And one issue with brain donation and these types of studies is selection bias. Families are more likely to approve brain donation if their loved one showed evidence of memory problems. This bias affects many studies because the brains that are donated are usually from people who showed evidence of some type of dementia. Individuals who played sports but did not show signs of memory problems at the time of their death are less likely to have their brains donated to these research activities. What that means is if I have 100 people who all played pro football and 50 of them died with no brain or psychiatric issues, no memory issues, nothing. They just passed away. Their families may not think to donate their brains. Perhaps they would if somebody asked them, but that may not be on the radar of the grieving family members. But if 50, if the other half of the hundred had some type of memory issue, psychiatric issue, or combination of the above, those family members would be more motivated to donate brains. They may not 
wait to be asked. They may go out and seek brain donation opportunities. So that's where the bias creeps in. That's not to negate the findings of these studies. Instead, it is to place these studies in context. So if you're thinking, wow, maybe we really don't know a whole lot. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't. But I did want to present this information because I feel a need to counteract all the hype and misrepresentation that is occurring in the media. If you are listening to the podcast, I will put the links to the content in the show notes. Let's talk about chronic traumatic encephalopathy and Alzheimer's dementia. Is CTE different from Alzheimer's? Yes and no. Both Alzheimer's dementia and chronic traumatic encephalopathy involve tau proteins. The tau proteins undergo the same changes that make them stick together and tangle up. For those of you who are science geeks, this process is called phosphorylation. A lot of phosphorus molecules latch on to the tau structure and make it sticky. And I could get into a whole bunch of information about how there's different phosphorylation techniques which make some tau proteins temporarily sticky and which helps them perhaps build up and repair the axons and other phosphorylation processes that make them pathologically sticky and cause the tau proteins to damage the neurons. I'm afraid if I go that deep, I will basically put you all to sleep. However, just note that type of information is out there. The difference in CTE and Alzheimer's dementia is not the messed up tau proteins. It is the difference in where the tangles are found. In chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the tau tangles will form close to blood vessels in the brain. And they will also cluster in the valleys in the brain, which is called the sulci. The next topic I want to talk about is what is the relationship between traumatic brain injuries, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and Alzheimer's dementia? So I'm going to take a quick break, and then when I come back, I will dive deeper into this topic. According to the Alzheimer's Association, people who have experienced traumatic brain injuries in early to mid-life have a higher risk of developing dementia in later life, and there seems to be a dose-dependent relationship, meaning that the more TBIs, the more traumatic brain injuries that have occurred, tend to increase risks for developing Alzheimer's dementia down the road. However, this is not cause and effect. These findings come from what's called retrospective studies, where scientists get a huge database of medical records from people, often from Medicare records or health insurance records. And what they do is they identify people who have sought treatment for traumatic brain injury, and they look at 
at when they sought treatment, and then they go forward in the record and look at, at the development of Alzheimer's dementia or other dementias. Another way this can be done is to get records of people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s from Medicare. And looking at everybody and separating the records for those who developed Alzheimer's dementia and for those who did not. And then statistically, they go back and they look at records, say, 40, 50 years in the past and look for evidence that the person was hospitalized or sought treatment for some type of head injury. And then they do, can perform statistics. Hmm. can't talk today, they perform statistical analysis to see what is the relationship between those with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's dementia and past TBI and those without an Alzheimer's diagnosis and their past history of TBI. And again, when you are dealing with medical records, there are issues with the medical records that can affect the results. So that's where these findings are coming from. There is some thought that traumatic brain injuries cause chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which in turn can cause dementia. But as I mentioned earlier, the CTE pathology is different from AD pathology. That is, when you autopsy brains and compare the two, the way the tau proteins are deposited in the brains are different. So here is where the three may be connected. While we have biomarkers for Alzheimer's dementia, we have certain MRI findings and images from PET scans, and now we can analyze cerebral spinal fluid and say, yes, this looks like Alzheimer's dementia. We don't yet have ways of diagnosing CTE until after death. It may be that people who experience head trauma and who develop CTE are diagnosed with dementia, but may be incorrectly diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia or another type. Another possibility is that damage from traumatic brain injuries that result in CTE make the brain more vulnerable to Alzheimer's dementia and the disease started nerve damage. So where I'm going with this is, let's say someone experienced a traumatic brain injury and they already had a risk for Alzheimer's dementia. And let's say the Alzheimer's dementia was already starting to cause problems in the person's 40s. Because that's the current thinking. The current thinking is by the time you see the signs of memory problems, the disease has significantly progressed. So let's say someone who has the Alzheimer's dementia pathology already starting, and it's starting in their late 40s. And let's say it's continuing to build, but they have enough cognitive reserve to make up for the damage. So if this person had proceeded their life without any else happening, they would not have shown up with Alzheimer's dementia until maybe their early 80s. 
However, let's take this same person and they don't know it, but they have the Alzheimer's dementia occurring in their brain and they're in their late forties and they sustain a head injury. And what happens with the head injury is the head injury is now causing its own damage. So you have two things causing nerve damage in the brain. Those two assaults on the brain, there's not enough cognitive reserve. There's not enough extra healthy neurons to compensate for two sources of problems. So now you have the individual showing up with signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's dementia in their late 60s. And I can even use that example in another way. I have someone who sustains a traumatic brain injury in their 20s. And this person's brain tried to repair itself and perhaps even did a fairly decent job, but there was damage that continued to evolve into CTE. And this person also had the genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease. So they were going to develop it anyway. And what you may see is you may see the person present with dementia, maybe in the early 60s or mid 60s, and they have a history of TBI, where in fact, if the TBI had never happened, they may have not shown signs of the dementia until much, much later in life. And it's possible that they could have died from something else, like a heart attack, before the signs of the dementia were evident. So I know that's a little confusing, but those are some explanations of why you may see dementias more likely in people who have had a history of a moderate or severe traumatic brain injury, or even people who've had multiple injuries, but they were of the mild variety. And right now, there's a lot of interest in studying people who've had multiple minor injuries and what happens to them down the road and comparing them to people who've had one moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. Now, what if you have experienced a traumatic brain injury? Do you just say, screw this, I'm screwed? No, not necessarily. And this is where the research is all over the place. Let's say two people experience a moderate traumatic brain injury. One person never fully recovers. She has memory problems for years after the event. The second person does fully recover. Why? Nobody really knows because the brain is not that simple. What we do know is what is good for the heart is good for the brain. So perhaps the person who experienced the traumatic brain injury and they never quite recovered, perhaps they had other risk factors that was stressing out the brain. And this was literally the straw that broke the camel's back. That's why one of the, like the recommendations that we give to everybody and all of us in neurology do try to follow is to keep your cardiovascular health 
front and foremost. So if you have experienced a TBI and you are concerned about your risk for developing dementia down the road, or if anybody is concerned about developing dementia down the road, you can help your odds by staying brain healthy and following some really important lifestyle changes. And I know I'm stressing to do everything you can to improve your cardiovascular health. The reason why is the Alzheimer's Association has a report on their website, a very in-depth report about Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And there is a citation in there in which the Alzheimer's Association estimates that 20% of current cases of dementia were preventable because the dementia came in in response to cardiovascular disease. So exercise, get to your ideal body weight. And I know that's a struggle for a lot of people, myself included. Keep your cholesterol numbers in the healthy range and try to stick to the Mediterranean diet with its emphasis on lean protein and fats coming from plant sources. The Mediterranean diet has been shown to be the best for brain health. And I know there's a big emphasis on keto and other eating programs. And all I want to say about those programs is they have not been studied to the extent that the Mediterranean diet has been studied. Second, rethink alcohol consumption. Are you drinking more than the one standard daily drink for women, two standard daily drinks for men? Even if you are adhering to the guidelines, maybe cut down even more? I know in the past there were studies that suggested that one to two drinks a day were good for brain health. However, a recent study published from the United Kingdom analyzed MRIs from almost 40,000 adults in middle age and those that were also older. And these were healthy people who resided in the United Kingdom. They found that even one to two drinks a day were linked to shrinkage that was detected on MRIs. And the higher the alcohol content, the more extensive the the shrinkage. Now, I know correlation does not equal causation. I say this all the time. But these results were, no pun intended, sobering. Another study published in 2015 examined MRIs from the brains of people recovering from alcoholism, from alcohol use disorder. And the MRIs were done after one week of abstinence, one month of abstinence, and seven and a half months of abstinence. And what these researchers found is that white and gray brain matter volume increased at each time period. In fact, significant positive changes were noted just after seven days of abstinence. So this finding contradicts the belief that maybe many of us heard that any damage done from alcohol consumption was irreversible. We don't know the point in which the damage is no longer reversible. And unfortunately, in this second study, looking at the MRIs of people recovering from alcohol use disorder, one of the sad findings was even after seven and a half months, the brains from those 
abstaining after suffering from alcohol use disorder, the volume never reached that of the healthy controls who never experienced alcohol use disorder. So that was a uh, a yucky finding, but again, this was limited to seven and a half months. And the third point is exercise your brain to keep your brain heart healthy and to keep your brain maximally healthy. Learn to do something new, perhaps learn a musical instrument or a new language or a new hobby. And recovery is an important part of brain exercise, which is why meditation is an important part of this balance. And meditation also helps to rein in anxiety and negative thoughts, which can also push people into depressive episodes, which is why meditation further improves brain health. And spiritual practices are also very much aligned with those meditative practices. So in conclusion, there's so much that we do not know about chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And in today's podcast, in, in this video that I provided, I really wanted to untangle the myths about chronic traumatic encephalopathy and talk about what we do know. Undoubtedly, more research and studies are needed to better understand the relationship between traumatic brain injuries, between chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and how CTE presents with dementia, and also the relationships between the various risk of dementia, including Alzheimer's, and brain injury. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of your day and for listening to my Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast. Just wanted to let my listeners know that my book, Make Dementia Your Bitch, is now available on Amazon in print or in Kindle. And if you are a member of the Kindle program, you can read the Make Dementia Your Bitch book for free. What makes this book different from the other stuff that's out there? If you've been listening to my podcast, I think you know that I dive deep into the behaviors, into the problems associated with dementia. And not only do I explain what's going on, I also provide strategies, something you can do, a ways to handle that behavior. Because ultimately, I want my book, my podcasts, and everything I do to help you become a more confident and competent caregiver and to better reconnect with your loved one living with dementia. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your B, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.